Michichi. I'm so popular. And I am here with the most important homosexual contribution to the world of fragrance since polyester. Who are you? I am Jack from the Perfume Nationalist podcast. Welcome. What are you doing? Um, I am spraying on some Clinique Aromatics Elixir, my favorite fragrance I just got off of work, and I need a little refresher. Yeah. And uh, why do you follow me, Jack? Um, I can't remember when I started following you, but I liked, uh, you had good aesthetics and uh, good interests. I feel like I've seen posts about Palia and um, good movies and stuff. Yeah, um, well, I got the Perfume National seal of approval, so that's it. Podcast over. Thanks, everyone, for listening. No, I can't believe that anyone, ha- like, values being followed by me now. I feel like so, like I've I've really come so far that people are, like, excited to be followed by me. I, like, it's <laughs> unreal. Well, I mean, for, like, several months there, it was like you were Lars von Trier, the Cannes Film Festival. Like, you couldn't touch you with a seven-foot stick or you'd get ultra canceled oh my gosh i can't i i can't believe it um yeah that's such a flattering comparison are are you talking about like a few months ago like earlier this year yeah that's when when i started noticing like the beautiful world of like post left stupid tweeting or whatever they all kind of started like turning on you and like same meme and some of some of those other accounts they started getting really, really mad about me and same meme. And this happened um, because uh, when COVID started, there was kind of a, a real obvious cross-pollination between the worlds of whatever you want to call it, like post-leftists and uh, my more like conventionally like I don't know, gay, weird, MAGA, uh, boomer, polio, yeah. libertarian, Republican. What I, I, you know, I, it, none of these labels really apply. But like, um, the technicality that I never supported Bernie Sanders was like a big deal to those oh. people. Even though, clearly, in terms of content, I have a lot in common with Red Scare and those people. And you know, they they all came on my show and it created a real backlash from people who did not want to see that happen. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, everyone this year has been extremely intense about politics in a way that I don't even recall during the last election. And I mean, I was like 19 during the 2016 one, so I may have just been like out of touch. But during this one, like it came out that I didn't vote for Biden. And I had, like, friends, like, confronting me over text about it. Wow. Yeah, see, I haven't had any, like, normie, bug, like, lib friends in about half a half a decade. And that was a big reason why I kind of got online a few years ago and really, yeah. you know, sort of found more appropriate and supportive online communities and eventually, like, tried my hand at starting a show and, you know, doing something uh, was because I was posting content identical to what I post now on my Facebook uh, to like 150 IRLs in 2014, 2015. So that caused everyone in my life to, you know, to uh, the word cancel didn't exist then, but (laughs) I I, I was like uh, canceled so long ago that, uh, it barely even registers, and now with the with the 
isolation of COVID and everything and everybody having to be far less social and the sort of uh, political polarization of this election, like none of it seems unfamiliar to me because it happened to me so long ago. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, aside from like the polarization and everything, I also find that I really just hate interacting with like the largely like lived hard of the base of my friend group from college. So moving to Japan and beginning to interact with like a population that's almost entirely conservative, if they ever even choose to bring up politics, is kind of like a little blessing. I haven't had to like get into it about race or about climate change or distract myself from like my beautiful world of aesthetics that I just want to like live in and drag all day. And I can just kind of uh ignore this but like the phantom of these old friends keep popping up to scold me for not voting for fucking joe biden it's so weird when they pop up like that because they'll still like a few of the stragglers um will still occasionally contact me and seem kind of uh perplexed and shocked and out of touch (laughs) with like what i'm posting on instagram and twitter and everything and it's like These are people that I hung out with constantly, and I was exactly the same person five years ago. Yeah. And they found me charming and inspirational until the exact moment that they didn't, where there was this cultural impetus to, you know, scold everyone and draw battle lines and purge problematic people from your life. But it's like everyone I knew, IRL from... 2015 like has like a black lives matter like avi and like it's it's, like one of them asked if i was gonna shoot up a church like one of my like old like fag hag friends from high school that we were like goth together like messaged me with like serious concern like are are you going to become like a a church shooter i was like i i was just in disbelief (laughs) like this kind of condescending concern because i what yeah i've retreated like what honestly aesthetics and everything yeah yeah because i mean at the end of the day it's not what you do on twitter is not even that extreme it's merely you know ignoring like this disgusting moment of a24 like really self-conscious art movies and paying attention to the world of a beautiful perverted aesthetics that has been so abandoned by liberals these days i don't, I just don't see extreme and i'm exact i'm exactly the same as i've always yeah. been and people used to find it charming and like i i've remained exactly the same it's the culture that's changed i'm like norma desmond it's like you know uh the, you know the the picture what, what is it in sunset boulevard the pictures have gotten smaller <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know yeah, um, I mean, I really appreciate the Perfume Nationalist for several reasons as, like, a piece of art because um, Gion from Twink Revolution pointed this out, but it's one of the few, if maybe not the only podcast that is, like, a self-contained, like, piece of art in itself. It's almost a product in some ways, and uh, behind, like, the subscription wall and, like, the beautiful, like, three-hour episodes and those, like, amazing, like, one tricks point never adjacent like, edits and things with like the best selection of art it really is like a self-contained piece of art well thank you i i really appreciate that that's what i've been trying for uh for two years all of the um technical aspects all the music um and the edits and everything that goes to my brother i i the credit goes to my brother i don't even know how to record 
the podcast. I just, <laughs> you know, control the content. But um, I really think that uh, people underestimate the capacity for experimentation and mm -hmm. um, artistic potential of the podcast or you know diy radio show format yeah. um and people just really sincerely lack imagination i think that you know five, uh, four or five years ago like come town and red scare were the first podcast that really made me see the potential of this format uh right. that like what you can do when you deviate from this sort of NPR imitation, like, this is our official credit sequence, and this is the subject of today, and this is our interview. Like, um, you can really do so, so much, and so few people do, but um, it's always my intention, and I always repeat, you know, people should listen to the whole thing from start to finish, um, mm -hmm. and so much of what I do is about giant maximalist works of art, soap operas that have narratives that go on for 50 years, five days a week. Um, but really, with this format, you have to listen from the beginning to get the full story. Mm -hmm. You can pick an episode out here and there with a big guest or whatever. But the sort of um, the narrative richness that's uh, the documentary narrative richness that's possible with podcasts and recording something with a different different cast of characters uh, weekly, you don't grasp what's really going on unless you hear the whole thing and make some sort of commitment to it. And like, I saw a review on iTunes where someone like really got it. They were like, this is like a pot, like a, a kitchen sink drama uh, and uh, experimental psychedelic mind expanding art uh, masquerading as a podcast. And I was like, yes, the kitchen sink drama about just like some <laughs> loser um, and his brother making this bizarre radio show for two years is part of it. Yeah. My introduction was, of course, not from the beginning, as I'm sure it is for a lot of people. <laughs> but I have since gone back and kind of started reading uh, the Perfume Nationals correctly. But it was uh, I was whining on the Internet about one of my friends in university who we were all drunk at like a house party. And I was talking about Irreversible and... Uh, I was kind of describing that fabulous Monica Bellucci rape scene and she got so fucking mad at me that she like left the party and then like told 10 of my friends that like I had like disrespected her as a survivor of like bringing it up. And uh, mm. I remember bitching about it on the internet and someone's like, you should listen to this podcast. And that was, <laughs> that was my introduction. <laughs> if, you, if you've uh, met backlash for making light of the irreversible rape scene, then you should listen to the perfume nationalist. That's perfect. Exactly. Um, but yeah. That, that sort of thing is what gave me a hint of what was coming culturally. The first like dark signs that something was coming because all in the very early 2000 or 2010s, all of my female friends who previously were watching like Pink Flamingos and Last House on the Left with me yeah. in high school and totally enjoying them, they developed this. They went to college and developed this performative sensitivity to rape scenes. And yeah. um, they, I remember being publicly scolded by one of my friends because I was like laughing with her boyfriend about the South Park where uh, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg are raping Indiana Jones on the pinball machine. <laughs> uh, it was like when the, the fourth Indiana Jones movie came out. And she was like, that is not funny. Even if it's cartoon characters, 
raping each other on a pinball machine and Indiana Jones being raped. It's not funny. And she like made a scene and like flounced into the bathroom. And that was like 2011. A woman loves to flounce away when they're upset with something. Mm -hmm. Like the flouncing out of the house party into the bathroom. It's tragic. Confront me. You know, I'd like the drama at least. And she, she also like uh, privately scolded me like in the DMS because I was making fun of like some, feminist website that was saying that old movies need to all have uh, oh, like content context title cards saying how Ugh. they're misogynist and she was like you making fun of this is directly mocking all of your friends who have been raped um and yeah that was really a hint of what was to come but they yeah. they put up with me for five more years well i mean all of this is kind of the reason why i wanted to specifically bring you on to talk about um the artists we're going to discuss today and it's mostly because I think a lot of people who have read any of this writer or are exposed to him at all, like, really deeply politicize and have to comment about his rightism and, like, make, like, this kind of delirious, like, distance from him. Whereas uh, I think we can kind of get to the soul of his uh, thematic content without having to do that performative bullshit. It. It's strange to me the idea of anyone sort of uh, doing the usual like woke acrobatics about him because his Japanese-ness provides a kind of, you know, like a layer of insulation from, like you don't see him and think like, white supremacist right-wing nazis like yeah. you do if, if it's someone that's like american who is reputed to be a right-wing nationalist or a self-declared right-wing nationalist so there is like a kind of insulating factor there or like a buffer there but yeah it's uh strange to me to think of anyone um regarding him with anything but total fascination and respect <laughs> of course so yeah without <laughs> it goes without saying where you're talking about Mishima Yukio, the Japanese novelist, and uh, when this episode comes out, it will be the 50th anniversary of his extremely theatrical political suicide, um, where he took his band of twinks up to uh, some government building and <laughs> decided to kill himself for the country, which is really just kind of a means to an end of uh, his lifelong journey of trying to make his art and his life a synonymous like single work of art honestly so yeah it's the anniversary of his death and we're gonna talk a little bit about him and <laughs> what he means yeah yeah so what i find there's like three different ways people get exposed to mishima which is like libtard college students who are like looking for representation of like queer men of color and international voices and then there's like the bronze age faggot body fascists and like wannabe right-wing militia boys who are like attracted to his military aesthetics and think that they can kind of uh incorporate that into their own character and they take it all without a grain of irony or like like they don't sense any of the like uh, melodramatic camp aspects yeah. And then there's uh, the best of the three, which is like the post-Polya, like, like pervert astetes who are like seduced and allured by Mishima's beautiful world of death that he writes. So. <laughs> Ordeal by roses. Exactly. I, I got into him because I was really, really Democrat boy in college and was looking for it. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, actually reading him kind of uh, red-pilled me a little bit more into 
into the current political position I am. But yeah, I, I find that a lot of the people who are attracted to him because of his uh, military aesthetics just completely miss like the fact that he was doing it as like a piece of theater, basically. Well, my good friend Same Meme said it best today. He said, love how some people take Mishima 100% seriously as some paragon of stoic masculinity and outdated notions, Japanese honor and don't un- of Japanese honor and don't understand that both his life and art were almost entirely melodramatic homosexual camp. Oh, and just to clarify, Absolutely. I love Mishima. Um, and I was going to like reveal this on the show, but like you asked me to do this. And I actually was somewhat famous for a time for, like, making fun of Mishima online, and people would get mad at me all the time. And the story behind this is that, um, okay, I was, let's see, I was first aware of Mishima through Kate Bush's The Sensual World. Oh, yeah. The album cover of that is a recreation of that picture from Ordeal by Roses of him holding the rose. And then... Mishima seemed to explode in popularity around like 2015. Um, I read an author, Jack Donovan, who was kind of like early, like right wing gay stuff, very inspired by him. Um, very campy, but v- totally uh, unself aware and humorless, but nonetheless a big mm-hmm. influence on me because I was like, oh, um, gay men actually can do stuff like this. Um, and he wrote some really good articles and then kind of devolved into this embarrassing pagan LARPing. Um, but the influence of Mishima was always there. And then fast forward, Bronze Age pervert becomes a, becomes a huge trend and promotes Mishima a lot Mm -hmm. and, uh, has a lot of imitators who, um, don't don't really grasp the humor of what bronze age pervert is doing at all. And just kind of like basically become like, um, the male equivalent of like Finspo, like anorexic girls <laughs> and they're obsessed with sun and steel. And so I, I actually bought sun and steel, the, the cool sixties cover with the red circle in it, uh, for $25 and it's way more expensive now. And I read it and I absolutely hated it. Um, because like, I just don't relate to it and my perception of myself, like whatsoever. Like, like if I think of my son and steel, it's like Kathy guys, white, like, like yeah. the, the comic <laughs> Kathy, like that's, I see myself reflected in that, but son and steel is all about just humorlessly talking about, um, your relationship with your own body and, uh, how spiritually dead anyone not vainly obsessed with their own body is. And uh, I hated its symbolic prevalence in the online communities that I was a part of. And I found it really annoying. (laughs) I I hate that book too, actually. And I think the reason I hate it is because it's so out of touch with like the actual truth of why Mishima wanted to work out so much. And it's because he wanted to get like fucking pounded. Like, he just yeah. he was like just trying to like be hot, but he had to justify it in his overarching, super long personal narrative that he suffused his art with. So, uh, and people take that book really seriously, and I just can't abide it. I no, read it once. No, and they all okay. Finally, this week I'm reading. 
I read uh, After the Banquet and uh, started Confessions of a Mask and wasn't able to finish it, but Sun and Steel makes way more sense to me considered in the context of his pretty standard homosexual upbringing of he started and like he emerged from the world of women raised by his grandmother yes surrounded by only allowed to play with girls very effeminate but with this erotic fixation on masculinity as something like outside of himself uh violence something outside of himself and you see that the bodybuilder macho village people thing that he's doing is self-consciously a, a mask it's a fake thing right um and it's something that he adopts out of necessity in the way of like a woman becoming like a hyper feminine heavily made up version of a woman it's drag basically yeah but the, the guys that are into it don't like see it as that they just see it as basically like fat people are disgusting i work out all the time so i'm spiritually great uh here we go you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> he reminds me in some ways almost of um like brett easton ellis's like glamorama era when he was like really like kind of critiquing that body fascist moment and uh mishima was obviously just so performative with like his uh physical presence and everything that if you read any of his fiction like outside of uh his like last tetralogy which is uh, the sea of fertility which has like uh the you know, nationalist suicide in it, and it has, like, the all the body stuff in it. If you read anything else from him, especially, like, his novels with female protagonists, you see, like, the major distance between the clown that he's acting as in public and, like, the actual, like, sensitive fucking faggot soul <laughs> inside of totally. him. Totally. And it's, it's so wonderful. And part of the reason I was excited about when you asked me to do this is that like, I've had the stack of Mishima books. I've owned the Blu-ray of the Paul Schrader movie for a while, but I've just never gotten around to it because I never have time to watch anything or read anything for pleasure because of our show. Yeah. Um, and I was like, finally, this is an opportunity to like indulge and experience some of that Mishima stuff. And um, it's absolutely wonderful. And the, full spectrum of what he is doing the complicated and kind of all-encompassing vision of the world that he has that's so separate from the way that sun and steel is depicted in certain online communities yeah um and sun and steel is basically it is like the male anorexic thin spo tumblr account like yeah <laughs> like, like but really like legitimized in this way but um just everything that i've seen this week provides this full portrait that makes that make sense to me and now i'll probably like sun and steel when i go back to it but yeah i just associate it with these idiots yeah um the worst tweet i read about mishima this week is from that um neko sattva account um at neko girl 92 or whatever she tweeted, if Mishima wasn't gay, he would have just been a poor Kawabata imitation, which enraged me because I hate Kawabata. He wrote um, Snow Country and this really shitty novel about, like, the game of Go, and he has no aesthetic eye. He has no sense of beauty or, like, any of, like, the chaotic horror inside of women. He just writes, like, these, like, boring erection novels. And I was like, yeah, Mishima is also writing, like, boner books, but, like, at least, like, he has, like, his finger on, like, the pulse of, like, 
horrifying beauty and femininity and is like always reaching towards that. And because Mishima has this current status as a meme author, he's open to all kinds of bad and reductive takes like that. Yeah. But, you know, the view of Mishima before this particular moment and his place in culture is just far cooler. It's like, you know, when when you're looking at transgressive gay artists and who all the, like, cool gays throughout the 20th century you Mm -hmm. draw inspiration from it's always mishima Genet, um like uh douglas pierce from death in june um Mm -hmm. was always recreating mishima photo shoots and the so many of his um song titles album titles are uh spins on that kind of ordeal of roses like something murder by roses like right. uh all this lush poetic imagery of violence combined with roses and it's it's really nice and of course um all the like great 60s 60s like counterculture gays like john waters um we're all reading their like grove press editions of sod and uh Janae and Mishima and yeah it's a better a better time a better time for gay culture um you just have to think of him before that yeah because I mean uh Mishima wrote both of his uh, major gay novels before like Stonewall was even operating like he wrote about gay culturalism before it had even materialized and it leads to a like depiction of homosexuality that is infinitely more honest and unnerving than like, basically anything after that except for, like, Larry Kramer, in my mind. But so confident at the same time. Yes. Like outside of time. It's it's absolutely incredible to think that he wrote Confessions of a Mask in 1949, and it was what made his career. It's, like, the only parallel to me is um, uh, Kenneth Anger made Fireworks in, what, like, 1948? It's like right. these guys are doing stuff, like, so far ahead of everyone with like total brazen confidence and like no one supporting them or like justifying themselves or their worldview. It's, it's incredible. Yeah. Like, um, confessions of a mask in particular is like this, um, it's in the genre called an eye novel, which was like these really, um, kind of like cheap and tacky, like confessional novels in like the Japanese period that like, uh, Dazai was also writing in, but he kind of took it and then pushed it to an, its extreme with like a really perverted homosexual perspective on it that goes into so much detail. It describes like the exact mechanics of jerking off over that St. Sebastian painting. Mm. It's revolutionary. Yeah, I was surprised uh, with what I've read so far at how graphic it is because books were really not that uh, sexually graphic commonly at the time the fact that it describes like ejaculate on the the saint sebastian photo is unthinkable yeah and um when he wrote um forbidden colors a few years later that book is like specifically about like the gay scene in tokyo and goes into a lot of detail about how like these gay bars like functioned and it talks about like the drag queens who worked there and that book has more awareness of like the cult of beauty and like gay men's like body obsession than literally anything else I've read except for Kramer. 
So I'm hoping you read that one day. I think you'll like it. Oh, yeah. I, I bought a copy of that as well. I bought Confessions of a Mask and Forbidden Colors this week, but I just haven't yeah. had time to get through them. But Larry Kramer, I'm a huge fan of Faggots. I read it at a young, impressionable age, and it's completely mind-blowing to me that I cannot safely post the title of that book. And I've been someone who's openly gay since I was 14, and I'm now 33 and I can get thrown off social media for <laughs> posting the title of that fucking book. I know, and I would like to talk about it, but, like, you have to fucking put the asterisk in there as some, like, angry Twitter user is going to report the fucking tweet. It's happened to me before. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, we are not allowed to say the word. <laughs> Thank God for these podcasts. Anyone who's, like, 30 minutes in, if they want to report me for saying faggots, like, by all means. Thank you for the stream. Well, that's it's um, kind of the Wild West still, where you can say stuff that the the AI and the robots can't immediately detect, and I'm sure that will change in the future but that's um why podcasts are having such a rich cultural moment right now <laughs> yeah exactly and it's also why i can include uh the music from uh smt nocturne as like my intro and like my outro and stuff and not get <laughs> not get blown off the internet for it yet so. oh my god i love nocturne i, yeah, I, me too. I think about it i i haven't finished it i don't i haven't played a video game in like two years but um, I played through like maybe 30 hours of Nocturne um, a couple years ago. And I think about it constantly, that haunting atmosphere. Yeah, um, it's like the like this really bizarre apocalyptic tone that I've never seen in any other form of art like successfully reproduced. So good. And, and like all of that whole franchise seems genuinely like satanic and lonely in this way. Like yeah. even the first Shin Megami Tensei which I bought on my iPhone and was kind of like playing through and it's mostly kind of like point and click stuff. Right. Um, but it has that same just atmosphere of like satanic apocalyptic loneliness that's like nothing else. Yeah, and I love that they're so difficult to get your hands on and like half of them remain untranslated. So you can only play like these dusty like SNES copies or you have to <laughs> emulate it on your computer. It feels like genuinely cursed. There's a there's a real mystique, especially to a Westerner, because it never feels like you can fully like culturally understand what's going on. Yeah, <laughs> like the context exactly. of all of that. So it seems really evil. Like <laughs> I got the same experience reading uh, after the banquet with all of the political discourse in there as um the lead character god her name's kazu right uh kazu i yeah i i just read it three days ago and i barely remember but yeah but yeah the um the political stuff i just immediately was able to apply to you know the most recent election and the the current political climate because they circulate this this pamphlet about uh the protagonist like sexual adventures uh, depicting her as like a depraved like black widow whore <laughs> um, and that's partially what causes her husband to uh, lose the election but after the banquet which i purchased several years ago merely because of the cover um i it's one of the like 70s paperback editions those are the only ones you're allowed to read like the the really ugly ones they do now like the new reprints that have like the Japanese aesthetic of the rising sun and like a temple on it making me want to kill myself. Oh yeah, it's all like snow falling on cedars like uh memoirs of a geisha looking now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um but after the banquet, okay, this was I just inhaled this book. 
I had no idea what it was about. I didn't know anything about it. Um, but I inhaled it in a matter of hours and it was like tailor made for me because it's, yeah. um, boring in a good way. And I guess if you listen to my podcast, then you know what I mean by boring, um, yeah. <laughs> but like to an average person, I guess they might think it's a bad thing, but like, it's like uneventful in this wonderful way it's basically a literary like uh douglas sirk melodrama um that takes place in japan and it's entirely focused on details of outfits and food and the menus and like these loving descriptions of the calligraphy of each like item on the menu like the precise process of how the food comes out it is so delicious oh and the the story itself is compelling uh you know you really don't know what's going to happen it's about this a uh, woman who's about 50 who is the proprietress of a an upscale restaurant where prominent political people congreg- congregate and she falls in love with uh basically bernie sanders japanese yeah. bernie sanders <laughs> exactly <laughs> he's like really un- unlikable and unappealing um but and he's like cheap uh and uh but he has this uh sway over her and she marries him but she's such an, a naturally ambitious a woman that she takes control of his political campaign for uh i forgot mayor governor whatever um and uh she ruins it and he is terrible to her the entire time um just basically hates her the entire time and they eventually break up and she goes back to the restaurant and is able to be happy again and it's it's quite sympathetic to her but she it, her it totally flaws, lets us know that it's like her fault that she set this up. Yeah, it's, it's like very her own sick desire. Mo- uh, modern in that way, like Isn't pe- it? people yeah. pretend like depictions of like complex, unlikable women are some new thing, but this is extremely outside of 1960 when it was published, um, because she is like an unlikably ambitious and controlling conniving yeah conniving and she like lies to him the whole time um just doing everything behind his back uh but it's still the impression is overall sympathetic with her and um the moments that you're left with that i really like in this are when it describes her morning walks around her garden outside of the restaurant and smoking her morning cigarette and her little routine her little solitary routine. She really doesn't seem like the type of person that functions well in a relationship. And it's just yeah. good at being alone. <laughs> and um, Mishima, all of his female protagonists that I've read anyway, have this very like patient, nuanced, and complicated perspective on their protagonist. Whereas like now when we get like girl bosses like writing their like representation star novels, like all of these women who are allegedly flawed are only flawed in a way that they can be justified by, like, some trauma. And meanwhile, like, Mishima says, like, this woman is conniving and is desirous of a power that she doesn't even actually need or want, and it, like, lets her suffer for it while still, like, giving us actual empathy for her. 
Absolutely. And this is something I was talking about on our last episode about Gone with the Wind, because Scarlett yeah. O'Hara is also such a modern and really severely unlikable and ambitious protagonist uh, for whom they make for whom margaret mitchell makes no excuses for her behavior and the last 10 years where there's there's been this real trend for making movies with female protagonists that are supposed to be like total fuck-ups and complex and unlikable but the usually female screenwriters always provide right in a justification for whatever they're doing so like young adult is a movie that i quite like i saw it three times in the theater actually and charlie's theron is great but there's this stupid moment at the end where all of her bad behavior is given justification because she lost a baby yeah ingrid goes west is another case where it would have been a really great and cutting satire of like the kind of boho rich hippie milieu that i used to work in but they give her a justification at the end where her mother died so she's yeah. lonely you know like they, they can't resist doing that and then stuff like gone with the wind and after the banquet they they don't do that they don't give this yeah. narrative justification Kazu is like that because she's like that. It's, there's no like lurking trauma behind her. It's just that she's a woman and she wants power, and so she goes after it, and that's what happens. And uh, one of his earlier books called Thirst for Love, I believe it was the follow-up to Confessions of a Mask, has uh, another female protagonist who um, her husband dies of sickness really early, and she has to move um, into like a rural Kansai farm with his family. Um, and then she gets the hots for a uh, groundskeeper boy on it. And she slowly starts, like, poisoning his relationship with another girl. Um, and at the end of the novel, we kind of see all of it catch up to her. And we're never, like, intended to sympathize with her for, her, like, her dead husband or some loss. It just is showing, like, her monstrous desire getting out of control and, like, letting us read the consequences with it. Oh, and, and after the banquet, it's so great because you think at every point that she's going to stop controlling his, the political campaign and doing yeah. things behind the scenes after he finds out and tells her. But she just continues right right on doing it out of his sight, giving speeches, printing out calendars with his picture on them. Um, yeah, and, and you end up liking these characters a lot more than you would if then if you were given this manipulative justification for their behavior absolutely because then they feel like more close to something that would actually exist in the reality we're in where people are just shitty because they're shitty sometimes like there doesn't have to be some moral justification for it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah so uh, i love both of these novels um i kind of want to touch on confessions of a mask a li <laughs> little bit i love mishima's depiction of men like all the time he has nothing but like really beautifully realized men and then like complete ugly monsters like Kazu's Bernie Sanders husband in <laughs> yes yeah her Bernie Sanders husband but the um the way that he depicts his relationship to men in Confessions of a Mask is something that I related to so much in the kind of evolution of my own homosexuality which yeah. i was i was like consciously aware of from 
a really really young age like long before i ever like knew what sex was or anything i was very like romantically and sexually attracted to men um from like age three four five yeah me too and um (laughs) a the way that he um is in this boring world of girls and he's comfortable with the girls and then when he goes to school the boys are something kind of outside of himself that have a mystery to them. Like he knows that he doesn't really fit in with them, but he um, admires them, finds them erotic, uh, finds them uh, just really appealing in every way, even though he knows that he's not really one of them. And we've seen these depictions earlier on of him putting on his mother's kimono and like, dressing up as a girl stuff like this so he's not this idea of uh mishima is being like the most alpha mask uh gay guy ever you know that like the bat it's such a joke it's such a joke because he's such a total queen and this like (laughs) like his very first book that caused him to become famous like right from the start but you learn Uh, as a homosexual what you need to do in order to attract and interact with men and it's so different from how you interact with women and like it's you know similar things happen to me throughout my life where uh you just value the attention of like men especially like straight or masculine ones more of course what you have to do to get them (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that is the, the most fucking elegant description I've ever read of his uh, approach to men. Because I remember reading this for the first time in college, and it horrified me. Because this was the first time, because um, I read this before I read Faggots even, and it was the first time I had been confronted with like the actual reality of like what my experience like growing up as a faggot was. And the way he describes like the distance and like... Uh, the way that you have to like look at certain parts of men in order to like witness it. (laughs) Like you have to stare at like their shoulder or like admire like the masculinity of a single bead of sweat moving down their brow (laughs) or something. It's like so specific and fine tuned that it, I felt like I was getting called out. (laughs) (laughs) I know it is uncomfortably personal. And like all of his writing is, like that like like sun and steel like i threw down in horror because like it's not like i don't think what he's saying is true it's because it is too true and it's too true it it horrifies me it's like yes it's basically just like reading this book that's like calling yourself ugly and like i'm always like it's it, it really like uh disarmed me and just like reduced me to nothing because like that I, I'm a fairly, like, self-confident person, but that last, like, hurdle I have yet to jump is, like, making myself physically perfect in the Mishima way. I'm, I will always be Kathy. I will never be <laughs> Sun and Steel. And so, it's, it, yeah, it's really uncomfortable hearing it just said to you over and over again yeah. how, like, worthless you are if you don't focus on bodybuilding exclusively. And see, I, uh, I'm... My path to beauty has been through drag, which is, like, the cheapest, like, easiest, dumbest, <laughs> the gayest way to do it. Uh, and in Japan, it works because they don't really have, like, the distinction between drag queens, cross-dressers, and transgender women. So these straight men see me and they're like, oh, like, 
you are like potentially like a cross dresser who's gonna give me a blowjob. So I always get like <laughs> that sounds really refreshing compared to like the the current cultural moment in America where like uh, trans ideology and uh, drag and uh, regular homosexuality are like these like wildly differing things on different tracks like i want nothing to do with it yeah i i would really like to return to the old days where we where we were just like all faggots you know which encompassed like norman bates like the straight men who want to dress (laughs) as their mothers as a sexual fetish and like reg you know people who are sexually attracted to men like us and like drag queens and like i was i was doing drag in high school I did. Oh, I would love to see that. You must have pictures. I do have pictures. I'll send you one. We made the front page of the local paper because the year after high school, we did an all-male uh, production of Little Women based on oh. a 30s play adaptation of it. And we all had beards. This was long before Drag Race and uh, drag was everywhere again. And yeah. uh, I played Amy, the young bratty sister. Of course. And we played like Yoko Yoko Ono uh, screaming like during the intermissions and everything. It was like bef- before uh, Perfume Nationalist, it was my proudest artistic moment was that production of Little Women. But we um, made the front page of the local paper, which was still very conservative. And my friend that played Beth and I actually smoked a blunt uh, rolled out of that picture out of like color oh. ink. <laughs> Delicious. <laughs> Absolutely scrumptious. God, I um the point about drag is like American drag is so disgusting to me now because it's not evil anymore. Like, you know, RuPaul has just elevated these drag queens to absolute capitalism where they go on this show, they talk about their rape or like their dead mom and then Ugh. they like parade their tears around in a completely uncamp like boring way. And then it's everyone say love, like everything is love. Like drag should be destructive and chaotic and horrify you. Absolutely. And the the evolution of drag race is really interesting to me because it's like two different shows. Yes. I was a like huge fan six. of it. Up, up yeah, through, I guess, like season six or seven when yep. the first woke controversy about you've got a shemale happened. Yes. Um, before that, the show was shockingly on PC. I mean, yes, I, I, I can't believe that there hasn't been more of a controversy over sh- someone named Sharon Needles who <laughs> wore swastikas and Confederate flags uh, being awarded the winner of season four. And that's the best. Yes. And I think part of the reason nobody cares about that is because Sharon herself has descended into this like really boring like the the potential didn't you know pan out, uh, but Alaska was doing the same thing. Alaska right. like was drawing swastikas on her forehead and you yeah, know. sucking guys off on stage, and like now she's just as in like the RuPaul mode where she has like her very like PC you know Black Lives Matter podcast where it's like oh we have to talk about politics this week and like just oh it's horrifying and just I'm suck like, a dick. Can no one escape from the the powers of conformity foisted on them by this like it's just incredible to me and i know that like many of the guys most if not most of the guys that do that show are not terribly smart um no and they're just you they're kind of trained to do one thing which is make up their faces for instagram and like kind of parrot what's been done on the show before and do some like spooky drag queen iteration of what sharon sharon needles did first um 
So no one really thinks outside of the box. It's like it doesn't even occur to them not to incorporate the typical woke liberal trappings of uh, describing your bullying or rape. Right. Uh, or, you know, various parental tragedies. Like when that one... Oh God! When that when that one really young one, oh, uh, um, like Blair, went on stage, Blair St. Clair, yes, and and just strategically deployed this sob story bomb. about yeah that that sounded conspicuously like gay pornography. That was like I w- I was gang. I went to a frat party. at a frat party, and I was like, this is certainly not the fantasy of a gay man. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it was like done in such a way; it was so deliberate, and that was like. Uh, gays have been doing that on reality television since Mondo did it on Project Runway and right. strategically revealed that he was HIV positive, like, uh, you know, in like 2007. Yeah, because even the dumb gays have a sense for narrative to some degree, you know, like they, <laughs> they know when it's their time to drop that bomb. But RuPaul had them doing Gone with the Wind challenges in that yes. first season. And RuPaul was a real holdout. Of the the PC wars, like before Trump, there were plenty of people who were not right wing at all who were saying all the time, political correctness has gone too far. This is ridiculous. And then as soon as Trump happened, they all ran in the closet like Joyce Carol Oates was one. Um, (laughs) That's right. And yeah, she used to be a troll before Trump. She was like an anti PC troll. And then the thing with RuPaul is I understand totally why he shuts up because he's finally experiencing a level of success and getting so much money that he's never had, <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> he's been doing this for so long. So I understand shutting up, but I know it's not the truth of that show. And the, the transformation of that show into this, uh, woke victim, you know, rape and bullying parade of just like unlikable, stupid people is really a tragedy. It is. And I mean, it's. Uh, I'm glad Mishima died when he did. Because I, <laughs> I would have killed me to see him even approach this at all because, like, with Confessions of a Mask or Forbidden Colors to bring it back, like, when he is talking about, like, the trauma and horror of a gay man, it's not in the way that he's, like, looking for sympathy. He's kind of putting it on display as a carnival of utter disgust and terror that, like, would gain no sympathy points. Um, but by being so raw and honest it ends up like actually generating that sympathy almost completely incidentally well it's like this is this is this was the dominant mode of gay men up until they were officially socially sanctioned sanctioned with the passing of gay marriage um and like even through the 90s with like the new queer cinema movement like those were all dark complicated weird disturbing and truthful depictions of the homosexual experience uh they were not this one-dimensional, false, creepy, Pete Buttigieg propaganda that we have now and have had for the last 10 years. And nobody likes it. That's the thing, is that regular gay men have fallen in the public estimation, and they're no longer liked because they no longer do what they're supposed to, which is say things that no one else will. Like, Polya... Uh, said one time she, she has that, it down, yeah. that like her gay friends in the 60s and 70s would say absolutely shocking things that no one else would dare say and they've right. been tamed yeah and she said that you know gay men are like the last great like cultural 
um, preservers of any kind of masculinity. And I think that's obviously very true for Mishima. And um, I find it such a tragedy now that, you know, even like those 90s gay authors, like we had, you know, Chuck Palahniuk with like Fight Club or even Invisible Monsters and Brett Easton Ellis. Like we don't have like gay authors anymore. Like we have Pete Buttigieg, like Barbie dolls, just like walking around parading trauma it's they're all disgusting old. to me that's the, like all the ones that are still around doing good stuff they're all like over the age of 50 like yeah brett easton ellis is still great he's right about everything he was right from the start uh you know i've been listening to his podcast from the beginning uh he was way ahead in the podcast game and the the stuff that the foresight that he demonstrated by doing things like getting kanye west on as, as his first guest he's just he was right about everything from the start, but there are just increasingly, it's evident that uh, there are not younger people to replace him. It's like gay men have just been eradicated and like uh, forced into this horrible corner where they're subservient, subservient to all the like lesbians and female trans aberrations and everything. And mm-hmm. it's, it's, nightmarish and i really hope to change that (laughs) i really hope to um assist or facilitate in any gay men uh reclaiming the old tradition absolutely and like that's honestly i kind of think where the impulse for me to start podcasting came from is i feel so sorely lacking in like vulgar disgusting gay culture that i feel like i have to just like thrash around and do something before it's too late like we're running out of time yeah that was that was the the impulse for me to start a podcast was because i had literally nothing left i was just working like dead-end hospitality jobs that i hated and i felt like my personality all of my creative aspirations everything that i valued about myself had just gone down the drain unless i got some sort of outlet fast and i uh podcasting seemed to be something easy to try your hand at and it has worked out because i do feel like you know if the world ends tomorrow i did leave something here um that i was able to do while working a boring soul-crushing hospitality job in my free time you know absolutely I mean, teaching, which is what I do most of the time when I'm not um, doing drag at the bar, also eats my soul. And, like, I know it's, you know, meaningful or something, but just, like, concentrated labor where you have to be acting the whole time and, you know, completely divorced, like, from any artistry, it eats your soul, (laughs) like, every day a little. So I feel desperate to do something, so... Thank you for assisting me in my mission. No, absolutely. I'm happy you're doing it. And it is this, like, on the, on the one hand, I do feel like there's this unlikable millennial entitlement where it's like everybody was raised to think that they were a special creative who has something mm-hmm. unique to say, which is not true. Um, but on the other hand, I do think that I have something to say and, like, no one else is really saying it so why not do it why not do this low effort thing that might resonate with someone and the results have been amazing and i have had a sense of purpose since i've just basically been having this 
uh, weekly book club uh, where yeah. <laughs> I have to think about art and stuff that I actually like that goes beyond the drudgery of day-to-day life. Um, and it's it's made me really happy. Beautiful. Um, I think that's a good transition into talking about the movie, actually, because um, this is a Paul Schrader 1985, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I love Paul Schrader. I love American Gigolo and hardcore. And um, I even like uh, like First Reformed, his like, newer stuff, too. Um, I think he's like one of the great like final perverts who have managed to, you know, keep uh, crawling their way through Hollywood. And uh, he has chosen to make this movie about Mishima's life where uh, he kind of shows Mishima having like the same struggle we're talking about where he is desperate to, you know, create kind of that modernist, you know, product, uh, something to prove that he existed at all. And um, it does that in a really artful and, and meaningful way. Produced by George Lucas. That's that's my fav- favorite aspect of this. Is yeah. that there was a time when uh, Francis Ford Coppola and George Lucas were... Uh, eagerly putting their names on a project like this. Um, Schrader is awesome, and you're totally correct. He's one of the last great perverts, indefinable perverts. And uh, I always think about um, uh, it being reported that he just like spent tons and tons of money just like doing beaver shots of Nastasia Kinski for cat people, <laughs> like hyped up on cocaine. And bef- I think this and Cat People are my favorite Schrader directed movies. Yeah. Um he was really on a roll in the early 80s. I think it went hardcore American Gigolo, Cat People, Mishima and like Right. That's such a like insane schizophrenic oeuvre. Like that's all over the place. Yeah. Um talk about versatility. Um I meant to watch all the extras for this DVD, but I didn't have time. But like how the hell did Paul Schrader direct a movie in Japanese? Okay, so I actually watched the commentary that they had on the Criterion edition. Um, I think it was with him and one of the producers. And this was like a fundraising nightmare for one. It was like half-funded um, by Japanese. And then his sister-in-law is Japanese. And she translated the script and did a lot of the onset translation and everything. They worked in Japan with a Japanese crew. And um, he talked a lot about the Japanese reaction to Mishima, which is that because there's no easy opinion to get from him after his like faux like political suicide that they uh no one is really willing to like give an opinion about him and he's very taboo and this remains true to now because whenever i tell my coworkers or japanese friends or like customers at the bar that i'm into mishima they always like freeze a little bit <laughs> and then they're like oh is that so i've never read him before <laughs> and, and then the conversation funny. moves away yeah but um because Mishima's widow hates all the faggot stuff and like is completely uninterested in uh, all of the stuff outside of his books. She was really, really um, kind of particular and, and futzy with uh, what they could and couldn't adapt. So they wanted to do Confessions of a Mask, but they had to do it to an untranslated Mishima novel called Kyoko's House um, so that Schrader could get like the gay element across without having actually any of his gay books depicted. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the Kyoko's house parts of my favorite. Mine too. Of this because it looks like Pee Wee's Playhouse. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's like all teal and like hot pink and, you know. They had a Japanese department store like layout designer do the sets for this movie. And 
um, anyone watching will see like the extreme difference between like the events leading up to his death that they depict in the flashbacks, which are for, like kind of shot almost like cinema verite, and then these um, pieces depicting actual novels that he wrote are all in this hideous, glaring, gorgeous color that's so out of control with the most like fantastic anti-real sets. Yeah, it looks like Pee Wee's Playhouse or Shelley Duvall's Fairy Tale Theater. Um, oh, it, yes, it, it's quite gorgeous, especially contrasted with the rest. And the whole time, yeah, I was thinking like, this is really out there for a movie to for uh, Francis Ford Coppola and George Lucas to like put their name on this. And I, you know, I think it became a substantial kind of art house hit to a degree, or at least people were aware of it. And it got wide distribution, um, but it's quite alienating and confusing. And like, I'm someone who like has a rough idea of Mishima's life and work, and I can't imagine how alienating this would be to someone who just like you know, like an old person who just goes to the art theater in 1995, yeah. 1985, yeah, <laughs> just grandma and grandpa out of the art theater and like here's like this like sex suicide disaster horror. I love it. Yeah, contrasted with all the the biographical historical stuff, like seamlessly going back and forth, you know, yeah. This is one of those movies that um, really is able to get its thematic concept, which is, you know, Mishima's very perverted, disgusting relationship with beauty and then suffuse, like, the entire atmosphere with it. All of these sequences depicting his novels are so gorgeous in spellcasting. Um, I've seen that Kyoko's House segment so many times. Like, I will just rewatch it on its own. And I always get, like, a pit in my stomach watching it. And, mm. like, watching the commentary uh, last night, I, like, cried three times for no reason. I just, This movie, like, attacks me. It made me very emotional, too. And, like, I'm very, like, deadened and don't react to any movies. But this really did uh, make me almost cry at the end because, I guess, just the sheer intensity of like the more mortality and the fact that it's real that somebody actually did commit seppuku just you know as a gag as an artistic thing yeah like, it's <laughs> fucking crazy <laughs> <laughs> and it's it really manages like that anti-real element with the um super fantastic like sets and everything to such a beautiful degree that like it is so thoroughly convincing i can't understand how they were able to get such a unique effect in this movie it is it's um i think part of the magic is that you could still make period pieces about the earlier 20th century that didn't feel so artificial and production designed and right as of like you know really through the mid 90s part of that is the method of filming um like everything Mad Men, which I like included, feels very digital and sterile, and just yeah. like you can just imagine the the production designer going to the different little you know like Etsy, Etsy shops ordering things, and like the worst example of this kind of production design is the uh, the uh, recent adaptation of Little Women, where it literally looks like an Etsy shop, just like pictures mm -hmm. that like chicks took of their little Victorian stuff. But, like, stuff could still have this realistic texture, and that's because it was 
you know, still closer in time to that point. Um, but the fact that they achieved so many different looks and it has that great um, 50s, 80s thing. Like there was a big vogue for the 50s and the 80s, yeah. which you saw in like Madonna videos like True Blue, which looks like this movie actually. Um, actually it does, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And, and like that... There were all those, like, you know, on, like, Trapper Keepers and Binders, there would be, like, 50s malt shop Mickey and Minnie Mouse and stuff like that. They're really, like, hot pink and 80s looking, but also 50s. And this kind of has that vibe. And Pee-wee's Playhouse, obviously. Um, Pee-wee's Playhouse is total um, 50s, uh, B-52s kind of camp through the 80s um postmodern uh memphis filter this feels very memphis to me as well like i see that and not to mention the philip glass score which is like completely abstracted from any of the elements before and is you know you know glass has always been a very um avant-garde i guess i'll say composer and it's so immaterial to the physical product of the actual film that it creates like that really disturbing spellcasting kind of tone for it and that's great like i i love the music but it's also the most alienating thing about this because we've had so many like oscar winning movies in the last 30 years that have had basically this score is this the first one the first like prestige movie with a philip glass score i think it must be because the other ones i can remember is like what like the hours the hours Um, is a big one which the hours is all is kind of similarly schizo and really good i want to recover the hours reputation and then it just has like even if it's not officially philip glass like so many Oscar movies of the last 30 years have like had that kind of like churning Philip Glass score to the point that it right. seems like parody now. Yes, you can't do it anymore well because it's already, you know, reached its apex point to the point that like the Truman Show just straight up lifted the music from this movie like it didn't even get like a new score just like use that one again oh yeah it's it's at this point just like stock music that you put on a big budget movie to give it that veneer of oscar prestige and added to that it's not just philip glass but this also has chronos quartet which is requiem for a dream which is one of the most Uh influential and imitated and parodied scores of all time for the last 20 years which also similarly to the truman show thing remember when they just straight up lifted the requiem for a dream music and used it on the lord of the rings trailers (laughs) (laughs) like I it really smells of that whole era of uh YouTube video clips like when they still had like the really fat ugly logo and all the clunky design and everything. Uh-huh. <laughs> Requiem for a Dream music just sounds like looks like that to me when I when I hear it now. <laughs> yeah, I mean I was around for when it really came out and it was it uh blew everyone's mind including mine but it was so influential that like this Philip Glass score, it seems like funny now because yeah. we've seen so many parodies <laughs> involving yeah, that exact sound. I guess it's also what what's that movie where they like film everything really quickly, like Ko- Koyan. Oh, Koyan Scotzi, which is great, but also kind of hilarious. Like, yeah, after the fact, which is funnier in the dilute form of Madonna's Ray of Light video. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> The Madonna video is the superior version of that movie. For yeah, sure. yeah, it really is. It's aged better. 
Absolutely. Yeah, but I, I, I love that score. And um, I have like an affection for early Philip Glass stuff. Like I had um Einstein on the beach on vinyl uh, that I like picked up at a thrift store and like played to death in college. Well, but like Enya, it's so distinctive. And it w- it was so just influential and took over the world that uh, it's that's why it's so susceptible to parody and to seeming funny and like Enya is also like eternally cool for that reason and Enya right. is very like cool right now because people can see her artistic work for what it is which is this like self-contained baroque uh totally individualistic style uh, that just became popular by kind of accident and used in funerals and furniture stores and everything. And um, Philip Glass is also just so instantly recognizable that it's a it's a similar thing that people kind of laugh when they hear it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's funny. I don't think we're ever going to have a composer with that much power again. No. I mean, what else can you do? Like, what could a composer do? Like, come out and, like, regular ass people who don't think about classical music at all would still like know their name like full class you know the only uh people who really i think even like use score well anymore is like um god i have loved his movies for so long and i still can't say gaspar noe's last name what is it (laughs) i don't know Uh, i've always said gaspar no but i don't know you think that makes sense who knows i I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I, I really have never had anyone say it correctly to me, and I've never heard it. And I've been watching his movies for 20 years. Yeah. I mean, like, Climax, for instance, you know, not a movie that's scored, but a movie that is DJed. Um, and I think that that's way more impactful now and is uh, drilled into my brain. I still can't, like, exercise that soundtrack out of me even, like, two years after seeing it. Oh, absolutely. And he is someone who... um is exquisite at choosing things to reference and make into something else. And like climax is really good. Uh, love is probably his weakest, but I still, and like, I still love it. Like every, yeah. I, I still love it too. I thought it was such a wonderful event and it is exquisitely curated as well. in the way that the protagonist has like uh, the birth of a nation, poster. birth of a wall. nation poster, Peter Soto's books on the, bookshelf um and it uses like the cannibal holocaust score and you know just a really uh master of picking cool references uh like far beyond the way that tarantino does and stuff but like you know in in his real like impactful heyday with i guess i stand alone irreversible and i would count enter the void Mm-hmm. Um, he was doing like genuinely original stuff that was less about uh, that kind of curation, I think, even though there's a big element of that because, you know, there's all the 2001 stuff in Irreversible. In the Thomas Bangalter music that he's lifted and whatnot. But um, Irreversible, when it came out, felt much more um, less referential and like, certainly yeah. more like cutting edge like of its time. Into the yeah, void ir- as well. I said Irreversible is a five to me, and then Climax is like a four and a half. Is like how I rated them. Uh, I love them both dearly, but Irreversible is like the perfect No Way movie to me. I it I think it's the best one. I think it summarizes all of it. Uh, the best his mission statement, um, and it's very pure. Into the Void. I saw it twice in the theater in two days, and I anticipated that there would be like this movie was so 
unquestionably great and new and fresh and exciting that there would be this like enter the void craze that, that never materialized never happened. <laughs> and it turns out normal people hate that movie all the normal people i went with were angry about it and hated it and i was just like how could anyone not love this experience okay and now like the, the the bar has been so lowered like from Mishima to Enter the Void to now, like, Midsummer can't even get the normal people on board for it. Like, what is going on? Yeah, it's, uh, it really blows my mind. I was happy to see that there was kind of a cult um, appreciation of Climax, which, yes. in, when I saw that in the theater, people were audibly angry, like, openly angry. Um, and, uh, this girl called out like, oh, that's the movie. That's what I paid for. <laughs> and, but then I think a, largely because Dasha was championing it a lot that, uh, yeah. many people, uh, watched Climax and appreciated it. I got to take my boyfriend to a screening of that in a Japanese theater. Um, and, uh, people in Japanese theaters do not laugh. They do not scream. They sit in complete silence for the duration of the movie, even if it's funny like, it is silence. So I just watched the people, like, standing up and, like, looked around and, like, watched all these people, like, stumble out of the theater. And my favorite was uh, one of the cute little salary men uh, who went and watched the movie on his own, like, like fucking, like, dizzily stumbled over to the counter and, like, bought one of the CDs of the soundtrack. Oh, my gosh. That's wonderful. I, I think people should be uh, silent and unreactive at movies. Yes. I actually don't like... Um... Uh, demonstrative audience reactions. I um, hate to laugh in a movie, as especially well. like the Alamo Draft House, where like the worst losers will react to the lamest stuff, like Nicolas Cage doing a campy thing and Mandy. Like they'll react to that, but they'll be mad about like climax. <laughs> Cinema's over. It's totally over. <laughs> it's, that it's is done. Now. It had a good run. Uh, before we wrap up, I have one very pressing question for you, and. I want to know what you think Mishima smelled like. Uh, well, it's got to be Rose. Um, so I'm obsessed with and fixated on Rose. Um, Rose and patchouli is my favorite combination, my favorite accord in all perfumery, and almost all of my favorites uh, have the contrast of astringent rose and raspy, raspy, dirty patchouli, giving this impression of like wet soil and wet flowers. Yeah. Um, from aromatics elixir to portrait of a lady, uh, to Rossi de Palma. So, um, portrait of a lady is experiencing something of a moment right now. It's a very popular perfume, but it's an absolutely beautiful, um, rose patchouli. That's very lush and very expensive. And there's, it's incredibly strong, very 80s inspired, um, but there's no way that anyone could ever complain with being faced with this beautiful fragrance around. Oh, it's them. kind of affordable. It's it, I mean, it is. I mean, here. to me, like I'm a crazy person, and it seems affordable to me. I mean, you, it's, yeah, it's like basically an extreme, an extremely strong perfume that you need to use very little of, and a 100 milliliter bottle is um, about $400, but uh, like you get your money's worth. Yeah. <laughs> um, also uh, another Frederick Mall Yoon Rose, which is a really cold, frigid, uh, refrigerated, frosty rose scent um, that seems like almost a cruel rose to me. And um, I was excited to learn that it, that scent is actually really popular in, Asia, uh, which oh, okay. makes sense to me. 
Um, so I think that Yoon Rose, which we paired with the movie Melancholy Der Engel at one point, uh, would be a good scent for Mishima. I um, just ran out of the perfume I've been using, and don't ask me what it was because I found it on a street corner in college. Um, it fell out of like some sorority girl's purse, and it had like a really like lilac tone to it. It was very weightless. I had to use a lot of it to even have any impact. And um, for me, it's very important for a drag queen to have a fragrance of any kind. So uh, that's out. It's done. So I have to get something new. And I was uh, going to get whatever you recommended for Mishima. So thank you. Okay. In terms of a modern one, I would say Yoon Rose. In terms of something that would have been around when Mishima was alive. I feel like as an aesthete and as a cultured dandy, he would have been aware of the great uh, French Guerlain fragrances up to that point. And his younger sister was named Mitsuko. Uh, Guerlain Mitsuko is like the greatest Shepra ever made. It's from the Mm -hmm. 20s. Um, You can still get it very affordably. It smells completely outside of this time. It smells like old books, a musty attic, Ooh. a forest floor, uh, peaches, incense. You can get a bottle for about $35, $40, um, and it's an artifact of a completely different era, and it was um, Guerlain's Japanese-themed perfume. Um, and so I think that also goes well with Mishima. Well, I think that'd be perfect as well for an American drag queen in Japan, like wearing like an impression of Japan as like a... Oh, Mitsuko would be perfect for Japanese drag. That's that's a great idea. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on. This has been like the most delectable conversation I've had in ages. I'm so happy. Uh, where can people find more of the Perfume Nationalist? Well, thank you. I've had a great time as well. Um, the uh, We are on Patreon. Um, so it's patreon.com slash perfume nationalist we have a free feed every other episode is free uh if you search on apple podcasts um but it should come up if you search perfume nationalist and we just concluded our second season with a massive gone with the wind three hour gone with the wind episode which includes an overview of the entire year of 2020 and all the chaos we've been through yeah it's a stunning piece of art um so you have to go subscribe so you can get the full narrative experience it's worth it for those three hours of content thank you thank you so much for having me on my pleasure all right everyone jump